Our scripture reading today is Psalm 20. Finally, after a few weeks, we're at Psalm 20. It's, uh, if you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 456. All right, Psalm 20, verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. So this road work in Roslyn is getting a little out of control. Can I get an amen? Come on now. Those metal plates, those metal plates uh, on Susquehanna are keeping like the shocks and Tylenol business flourishing. Uh, if you haven't been down Susquehanna in a while, um, try it out and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And there doesn't seem to like be an end in sight because every time you think they've gotten to the end of the trail, they find another trail to blaze underneath the road. I'm not sure exactly what's going on. Does anyone know exactly what's going on? Replacing pipes. Yeah, that's about as much as I've got, too. Um, months and months ago, this work began on Susquehanna Road. There were the trucks and the excavators. There were the concrete saws and those dudes with the signs that flipped from slow to stop. Remember those guys? I don't know how they determine which guy gets that gig, but that is the gig that you want if you're on that crew. Anyway, when, when the work first started, I didn't think another thing of it. It's just... Um, didn't seem to have much to do anything with me, of anything with me. I figured that they were just replacing a busted pipe or something like that. I didn't know. An isolated repair that was far removed from me. But as time progressed and as the work progressed closer and closer to my home, it became clear that the work way up the road had more to do with me than I initially thought. It became clear that I was going to be benefiting directly from this work, though I still don't know how. How I'm going to be benefiting directly from it, um, but, uh, but apparently I am. But I, I do think that this is a little bit of a metaphor for what we're going to experience today in Psalm 20. I think it may feel like to you that there is some distance between you and the application of this psalm, but over time we'll learn that it's way closer to home than it may at first seem. For example, how are you going to apply verse 9 on Tuesday at the gym? See it? Oh, Lord, save the king. Should I switch microphones? No? Okay. I didn't, maybe I'm the only one hearing the ringing. But. Um, anyway, how are you going to apply, oh, Lord, save the king at the gym, right? None of us are kings the last time I checked. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like there's anything really immediate for us as modern-day Christians to sink our teeth into. What do we do with that from Psalm 20? But be patient because the distance will be removed 
as we dig into the text. You'll find that the gap between real life and this psalm is smaller than you think. Last summer, we covered Psalm 21 during our church on the couch uh, stage of the, of the church. And you might remember that Psalm 20 and 21 are like two verses or stanzas of the same song. Uh, stanza 1, Psalm 20, is the first part of the story in the song. And then stanza 2, Psalm 21, is the second part of the story in the song. It's like a good country song that tells a good story, right? Um, that's Psalm 20 and 21. Now, this does not always work in the Psalms. It routinely doesn't. Psalms aren't typically chronological and then interdependent like this. They're not normally dependent upon one another. They kind of stand on their own, most of them. But these two Psalms, Psalm 20 and 21, are actually really closely connected and related. So we're going to be pretty seamlessly weaving back between 20 and 21 because they belong together. And so we're going to cover them that way. These two Psalms reflect a pretty traumatic time in David's life. It's a time when he's feeling threatened. War seems to be looming right on the horizon. Look at verse 7 with all that chariot and horse talk. But David is not alone in his feeling the threat right then. The people under his rule, the people of Israel, are also feeling the same degree of threat. In fact, they're feeling that threat on behalf of their king. That's the way it comes across in Psalm 20. Just look at that little phrase right there, just before verse 1 of Psalm 20. It's called the inscription. It kind of frames the original purpose of the psalm. Psalm 20, verse 0. <laughs> to the choir master is what it says. Now, lots of psalms have these inscriptions. Some of them say to the choir master, others say other things. But it's unique because of these two psalms belonging to the same song this morning. So this psalm was designed to be sung publicly by a choir when all the people gathered, like on a day like today. This psalm was for the community of Israel. This is important for us this morning because we could assume that the direct application of these few verses was just to David because in Psalm 20, he's praying for deliverance and then in Psalm 21, he's celebrating the deliverance that he prayed for. But it's very like David specific. What do we do with that? At first glance, it seems like it's just a simple celebration of God's rescue of David and not all of Israel. But in the Israelite mind, so if you can put yourself back in that time, God's deliverance of the king was his deliverance of the king's community. God's deliverance of the king was the deliverance of the king's community. His deliverance was their deliverance. They're very closely related. For example, there was this time when David's troops came back from war and we're like, dude, we are not going to let you go, back, go out to war anymore. You're too valuable. It says this in 2 Samuel 21. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. David, in their minds, was the lamp of Israel. If his life was snuffed out in battle, Israel would be thrown into darkness. A leaderless, confused mess. His death would mean disaster for his people. There's a sense here in which David is Israel. He's the representative of them. He represents the whole nation. So this is why this little psalm about the king is designed to be sung publicly. Remember it says to the choir master. It's why it's designed to be sung publicly and corporately because the king's well-being affects the people's well-being. As go the king, so go his people. As goes the king, so go his people. In Psalm 20, 
they're collectively pr- praying through song for David's deliverance. You can see this in verses 1 to 5 if you look. You see all those mays there in those verses? May you do this and may you do that? They're all collective mays that they're singing together, begging God to do this for David, the king. Because they know that the treatment he gets will eventually filter down to them. That's why it's so important to them. In verse 6, David gets in on the gig. He's got a solo that he sings in verse 6. So imagine like a big choir and then a guy off to the side with the microphone. That's David in this song. So you got the choir singing 1 through 5, David over here at the microphone, he's got this solo in verse 6, it's not a long solo, maybe he didn't sing very well, I don't know, but he gets this solo, he responds to the choir, and then in verse 7 through the rest of the psalm, the choir is back at it again. So just imagine if, if President Biden was captured and being tortured or being held captive, and it was being broadcast to the American public as a sort of collective slap to our face. No matter your politics, hopefully you'd be patriotic enough to be alarmed about this, and want to do something about this. Because the way our president is being treated is reflective of the sort of treatment that Americans are going to receive. As goes the president, so go the people. But why should this matter to us? Why? What does it matter what some obscure Israeli king suffered through thousands of years ago? Why are these two Psalms even preserved in our Bibles? What is the point? It seems to be only about David. It's a good question that we should ask. And if nothing else, we can all learn a little bit this morning about how to responsibly read our Old Testaments. The Old Testament can feel like the road work way down the street. It's got nothing to do with me. What what is this all about? It can feel like it has little to do with us, but it does. Let me try to prove that to you this morning by telling you a little backstory about David. There was this one night when he had recently returned from war. And there was finally some peace and quiet. So he's just chilling in his house. He's sitting there enjoying the peace, looking around, pretty pleased with how things are going, uh, uh, taking great pride and joy in how beautiful and luxurious his home is. It's made out of cedar, which is like the top-notch quality stuff of the day. And then he thinks, man, I've got this multi-million dollar home. I love it. And yet God himself does not have a place like this. He lives in a tent, and I live in this amazing place. I want to do something about that. I want to fix this problem. And so we find this story in 2 Samuel 7, which, which by the way, guys, 2 Samuel 7 is a super, super, super important chapter for you understanding the whole Bible as one book. It is like the linchpin between Old Testament and New Testament. It helps you pull the whole thing together and make sense. 2 Samuel 7 is really, really important important. I'm going to read a few verses here from 2 Samuel 7. I'll have it on screen for you. And I want us to really focus on verses 10 and 11. I'll highlight that for you. But read with me here. Um, David, getting home from war. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, just go. Do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Nathan says, hey, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, 
Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. Here we're going to focus in on 10 and 11. Hear what, hear what God promises David. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. There's a permanence of what God is about to do for David. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So, David, you're not going to make me a house, but I'm going to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. More permanence there. You hear it? Forever. Okay, so believe it or not, this story explains why the people of Israel had all of their hopes hitched to David in Psalm 20 and 21. Through him, they'd get permanence of place, planted in a place appointed by God. He says, I will establish the line of his kingdom and of his throne forever. Permanence of place, and then also permanence of peace. God says they're going to be disturbed no more. Violence is going to be gone. You're going to get rest from your enemies. This is what God's people in Psalm 20 and 21 had their sights set on. This is why they're so intent on praying and singing about David's safety. Because his well-being was their well-being. And his well-being pointed to those promises made in 2 Samuel 7. This partly explains why Jesus, when he showed up on the scene a thousand years later, remember Jesus is a descendant of David. And so they're thinking in their minds, I mean, this, this must be the guy that's going to come through on all those promises back from 2 Samuel 7. This is why when Jesus shows up, they're like expecting a warrior king to take down Rome and to lead them into the promised land. Because this is the future, the one that I just read to you from 2 Samuel, permanence of place and permanence of peace. This is the future that their hopes are hitched to. A permanence of place and peace brought about by one of David's descendants. And this Jesus character that shows up on the scene, he perfectly fits the description. So they think it's him. Now I'm going to throw one more illustration at you this morning. Hang in there with me. That'll hopefully clarify this a little bit more. Because we're talking about a psalm written thousands of years before Jesus, actually talking about Jesus. How, like, how do we make sense of that? Um, usually once a summer when we do these psalm series, I throw up this scripture on screen. That's scripture. I throw up this picture on screen that I asked Ellie to draw for me years ago. She's not in here this morning, so I do not owe her a dollar, just so we're all clear on that. Um, she did so great with it, and it explains, I think, what's going on here in Psalm 20 and 21. If you've ever been at the base of a large mountain that's situated within range of even larger mountains, you've probably experienced what's going on here in Psalm 20. Um, if, if you're at the foot of a mountain that has a higher mountain just behind it, you may not even realize that there's a higher mountain behind it because all you can see is the ginormous thing right in front of you. But if you were to climb to the top of that smaller mountain, you'd soon realize that there is something even bigger and grander and more glorious just beyond that mountain. So when this psalm was originally penned, David was sitting at the base of that theoretical first mountain. You, well, I guess this is Ellie at the bottom of the mountain, but imagine, imagine David with long hair and in a pink skirt, okay? That's David sitting at the front of that theoretical front mountain. All he could see was his life. All he could see was the circumstances that he was up against. And they were very trying circumstances. 
he probably didn't realize that his life and his prayers and the songs that he's penning were pointing to something and to someone greater. So here's the deal. The future reality promised in 2 Samuel 7 that we read about a couple of minutes ago just outpaces what David could possibly do. Remember, it promises permanence of peace and permanence of place. David couldn't possibly be the one to pull all of that across the finish line. He was a mere mortal with a limited lifespan. He didn't know what lay beyond what he could see. There is something grander that laid beyond his perspective, even though at that point he may have had no idea it was even there. Now, just because there's a a bigger mountain beyond the smaller mountain doesn't mean that the little mountain is useless. It's still glorious in its own right. In fact, sometimes in order to get the best view of the larger ones, you've got to scale the smaller ones so you can see the bigger one. So to see that grander mountain beyond Psalm 20, we need to climb the original terrain of Psalm 20 to understand what it's all about in its original context so that we can understand its ultimate meaning. So just remember, today is going to be a tool in your tool bag for how to read the Old Testament. And I hope it, I hope it serves all of us as we walk with Jesus all our days. So Jesus hinted at this idea, this idea with his disciples as they walked down that Emmaus road in Luke 24. Here's what Jesus said. He's, he's already lived, he's died, he's been raised from the dead, and, and he's walking along with his disciples down the road. And he says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the thing, uh, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So what this means is that before Jesus ever even steps onto the stage of the New Testament, the whole book The whole first half of the book is already about him. He's telling them that all these things in the front half of the book, that, I mean, Jesus' name isn't ever used. He's saying that the whole book is is about himself. And so this should impact how we read the first half of the book, right? Moses and the prophets and the Psalms were smaller, beautiful mountains that had to be scaled to see the biggest and best and most beautiful mountain. So with the time we have remaining, Let's climb that first mountain of Psalm 20, but just so we can see the mountain that's behind it, and that's Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 20. Now, we don't know exactly the, the scenario that David was up against here in Psalm 20 and 21, but we do know that he's in trouble, and it's like pretty, pretty serious trouble, and he's reaching out for help. Look at verses 1 and 2, and remember, this is the people praying or singing on behalf of David. May the Lord answer you that you is David. May the Lord answer David in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. So whatever this day of trouble is for David, he needs protection in order for those 2 Samuel 7 promises to come true. He needs help and support. His life is in danger. And so David turns to the Lord. Where do you turn for help in trouble? Uh, To be honest with you, as I have been prepping this sermon all week, it has become clear to me how prone I am to seek for help in trouble from somewhere or someone outside of the Lord. My elbow has been really jacked up recently. I've been a whiny mess about it. Just ask Miriam. She she will be honest with you about that. I do not know what's wrong with it. Uh, I got to figure that out. Um, But all of my instincts during this time um, of my elbow pain uh, have been off, and probably in this exact order. First, Tylenol. Second, 
complain some. Third, ibuprofen. Fourth, whine a little bit more. Fifth, call Steve quickly about his arm doctor. Sixth, complain a little bit more. And seventh, just repeat the cycle again, starting back at one. Tylenol, complain, ibuprofen, wine, wine with an H, whining. Um, uh, call Steve Quigley, complain a little more, and then start the process over again. I continued in that cycle for several days. But you know what never showed up until Tuesday morning when the Spirit sort of massaged these truths into my own heart and soul? You know what didn't even make my list, not even neatly under the second round of ibuprofen? Reaching out to the Lord, running to the Lord for help, whether that's for healing or just for grace to hold up underneath the small trial. I just share that with you today to let you know that the Lord is massaging these same truths that we rehearsed together. He's, re- he's massaging those truths into my heart as I hope and pray that he is uh, for you as well. But I wonder what your, your tendencies are when you are in trouble. What you do when you're in distress probably reveals to you what your favorite crutch is. Are you a numb-er, like some kind of self-medication, excessive alcohol, maybe? At least I don't have to deal with my feelings for the next few hours. Are you a distractor? Netflix, binges, endless scrolling through social on your phone, anything to get my mind off of the mess of my life. Are you a doer? Maybe busyness is what you turn to to get your mind off of your problems. Busying yourself with tasks seems more profitable than getting on your knees. But what if you just set aside those things and what if you just prayed? What if you cranked up the music in your earbuds and just listened to some Psalm 20, 21 type music where you're just turning to the Lord and just meditated on the victorious reality of the resurrected Christ? What if that's where you turned when you were in trouble? Here's a quote by a guy named Dale Davis. He says, we must shun our favorite props and our most cherished substitutes and keep running into the tower of Yahweh's name. Our whole lives seem to be experiments in learning not to trust our artificial supports. Again and again, we have to learn that, the on, that only the nail-scarred hands of the resurrected Jesus are adequate to hold us up. So if nothing else this morning, David shows us the way here for when we are in the day of trouble. Run to the rock that is higher than you. It is not instinctual. We are humans after all. We need God to do this work in our hearts. Run to the rock that is higher than you, not for the bottle, not for the remote, for your phone or for the laptop. None of those crutches are going to be able to hold up underneath the strain for very long. But God can. God will. Test him in this. But remember, we're trying to understand the original terrain, the original context of Psalm 20 and 21. And we're looking at the interdependence between these two psalms. So look at the prayers in 20 and then the answers to prayer in 21. And I, I put them in a table for us on screen so you can see. The language similarities are striking, I think. Uh, in verse 20, the request, and then 21, the answer. Verse 4, he says, May he grant you your heart's desire. Verse 2 of 21, you have given him his heart's desire. Verse 5 of 20, may we shout for joy over your salvation. Verse 1 of 21, O Lord, in your salvation the king exalts. 20, 20 verse 9, O Lord, save the king. 21 verses 3 and 4, he asked life of you and you gave it to him. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. So clearly there's this threat to his kingdom and whatever it was was intensely distressing, perhaps putting into doubt the reliability of the promises that David had already received from God through the prophet Nathan that we read a little while earlier. 
Remember, as goes the king, so go his people. So David's loss of throne means the people's loss of life and flourishing. So the community of Israel is not unaffected by what David is deeply disturbed by. So they take up the cause with him. They sing this song together as their eyes lock on the choir master. Just imagine this big old choir with a conductor in the front and they're all singing this together with the soloist David over here. So there's this gap between 20 and 21. Sometime in the gap, something dangerous goes down and God steps in to preserve the future of his people by protecting the present king of his people. And so they respond with this giant karaoke party and they sing and celebrate God's deliverance in 21. So number one this morning, let's briefly talk about God's faithfulness to David. This is that small mountain and then we'll talk about God's faithfulness to us, the bigger mountain behind. Yep, we just got to point one. You, you heard it right. In Psalm 21, David is recording God's faithfulness to him and giving him specific praise for specific provision. All the prayers in 20 are answered by the time 21 rolls around. Um, so in 21, if you look, God faithfully answered David's prayer in verse 1. God faithfully preserved David's crown in verse 2. God faithfully preserved David's life in verse 4. God faithfully provided the joy of his presence in verse 6. And God faithfully provided David an indestructible stability in verse 7. Well, this got me thinking about how often we offer God specific praise for specific provision. And it's not often enough, I don't think. And the most obvious reason for this, I think, is staring us right in the face. It's, it's super simple. The answer is this. David wrote down his prayers, and he wrote down the answers to his prayers. Wrote them down in Psalm 20 and wrote down the answers in 21. That's a small, simple step that I think a lot of us would be served by. Get you a little journal, write down some prayer requests, and watch as God does his thing. Well, David is writing down what God has done, and I think getting into this habit will help us when the days are dark. Remembering what God has done should make us more patient with what he is doing. Remembering what, what he has done should make us more patient while we wait to figure out what he is doing. God was faithful to David, and thus he was faithful to his people. But let's think specifically here about how God's faithfulness to David thousands of years ago has a bearing on us in the present. That's all the road work down the street that we just covered, right? The original intent of the psalm. But let's close the gap here. What does David's difficulty and the people taking up his cause have to do with us? Well, think for a moment of what was at stake if God did not step in to preserve David. What would have happened? What would, what, what would be our experience today? Would we even be gathered here in these moments if, David, if God did not step in to protect David? I don't think so. Right here, we, right now we'd be doing something else. I don't know what it would be. You probably remember that Jesus was David's eventual son. So if God doesn't step in between Psalm 20 and 21, we'd scale the mountain of these Psalms and there would be no larger mountain beyond because there would be no Jesus. But he did step in between these two Psalms. And let's talk about that. God's faithfulness to us now. First, God's faithfulness to David, small mountain. God's faithfulness to us, the larger mountain. So in Psalm 20, David is praying for specific things. In 21, 1 to 7, he gives thanks to God for specific provision. But now look at what happens in verse 8 of 21. Everything sort of shifts to the future. Look at uh, 21, 8 and 9. Your hand will find out all of your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. 
you will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. The demise of God's enemies is absolutely certain. It is total and it is just. For David and his people, this future was a certainty. It will happen. There's no doubt about it. But just because it was a future, future certainty does not mean that it was a present reality for them. They looked around and none of this stuff was the case yet. Second Samuel 7 was just like a hope and a dream. But their past experience of God's provision informed not only their experience in the present, but it also shaped their vision of the future. They saw God work previously and they were confident that he was going to work again. God saved us then, he'll save us again. And so I think it's the same for us, guys. Celebrating specific deliverance helped them and will help us celebrate future triumph. That's what we do every Sunday. We celebrate specific past deliverance, which gives us hope for the coming week uh, of anticipating future triumph. We, we fully anticipate and expect Jesus to come back to rule and reign in glory and grace forever. That's what we get together to celebrate each, each week. Jesus won at the cross, we tell each other, we sing to each other. Jesus beat death, we sing to each other. He beat sin. He'll be the obvious victor in the end. This strengthens us to face the week ahead. And then we do it again, and then we do it again, and then we do it again. So clearly in Psalm 21, David's most recent victory that they're all celebrating will not be his last. He's got more victories in his future. His latest victory is just a small one in a string of successes that will one day culminate in his son, 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 celebrating victory over death. It's Jesus. In the end, God's faithfulness to David will mirror his faithfulness to us through his son. He'll do away with all of our enemies because he's doing away with the enemies of Jesus, which are also all of our enemies. What brought hope to them, essentially, is, is what I think will bring us hope as well. Permanence, peace, safety, and rest. This is what we want. This is what we want. We want permanence of peace. We want permanence of place. We want safety. We want to feel restful. That's why everybody saves for all of their lives for retirement. They want that feeling of, uh, that's the reality of what's being described in 21, 8 to 12. All our politicians in America, they know that we want that too. They know that every human being ever has wanted that feeling. And they capitalize on it. Um, that's why they make the staggering promises to us that they do. And despite all the ads that we saw last November about how Trump or Biden or even some third-party candidate could usher in peace and stability that this country needs, despite that offer, it hasn't come true and, and it never will. But they want you to think that it's them, don't they? Build back better. Make America great again. As if those guys had the shoulders broad enough to usher those promises in. If you were to look up Joe Biden's Twitter history from his campaign last fall, you'd see a whole host of promises that sounded something like this. We need a president who chooses unity over division. And of course he's right, right? He's totally right. But I guarantee you it ain't going to be Joe that makes that unity a reality and division a memory. Or Donald Trump and his White House were no less brash in their claims. President Trump announces historic action to deliver a future of safety and security for Americans of every race, color, and creed. Of course, who wouldn't want to celebrate those ideals? But he couldn't make that happen, obviously. Come on now, why do we keep getting duped by these guys that they're going to fix our problems? I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't think critically and make wise, informed decisions. I'm saying some trust in chariots 
and some trust in horses, and some trust in presidents and politicians, but we, Trinity, we must insist on one another trusting in the name of the Lord our God. Verse 7 of Psalm 20. History has shown repeatedly that this is just idealistic nonsense. Don't be sucked in by the hype. Don't be depressed when your candidate loses. Don't be filled with godless hope when your candidate wins. All these guys want to be the one that 2 Samuel whispers about. They all want to be him. The one who will provide a permanent peaceful place for everyone where violence is gone and peace reigns. But they're not from David's line. And even if they were, they couldn't do all that God had promised. Even though they'll claim that they can. It's garbage. They can't. They won't. There is only one who can do this. The future that is promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 is promised again here at the end of Psalm 21. But it probably didn't take David long to realize that it wasn't going to be able to be him that did it all. Think again through that list from 2 Samuel 7. Permanence of place, permanence of peace. David might have wanted to provide that for his people, but he couldn't. That's a high bar for any leader, and it's impossible. So if it wasn't David, who was it? Well, Nathan tells David, well, it's going to be your son. Well, was it Solomon? Well, no, it, it was not David's son, Solomon. Was it Solomon's son? No, it wasn't. They all had really bad track records. It would be more than a thousand years before these psalms would begin to take the shape of fulfillment. A thousand years later, one of David's great, 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 great grandsons would be born in a humble, borrowed stable. And the possibilities that 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 20 and 21 raise perked up in that moment in a little town called Bethlehem. See, David in 2 Samuel 7 was asked to start a race that he had no capability of finishing. But praise God, we have the author and the finisher of the race in Jesus. The finisher. In Jesus, God's people now have a place, a forever safe space, free from violence, filled with rest. But that rest came at a steep and violent cost. If you look at, if you look at Psalm 21.3, David may have received a crown of gold, but in order for us to be rescued, we would need a, a king who would wear a crown of thorns who would suffer under the just penalty of God's wrath for sins that we've committed. You see, we were, some of us are, those enemies of God in verses 8 to 12 of 21. We need the saving. We need our sins paid for. So on this pathway to Jesus' kingship was this old, rugged cross. And so if it's true that as go the king, so go his people. If that's true, man, our future looked pretty bleak. For three days. If he was the king, and if he was really dead, then well, there's your future. Really dead forever. There's my future. A pointless life, a shameful death, that's our lot. But if God delivered Jesus like he delivered David from death, if he really rose again, and if God's deliverance of the king is his deliverance of the king's community, as go the king, so go his people. You know, this is not an unfamiliar concept in the New Testament. The, the idea of representation carries over into the New Testament, where one person represents the many. 
It's what Romans 5 says. For as by one man's, that's Adam, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In Adam, all die. But all in King Jesus live. As go the king, so go his people. You want to be with the king. You want to be on the king's side. If, that, if that's true, then for all of us in Christ, on the king's side by faith and repentance, if that is true of you this morning, then your victory over death is sealed, signed, sealed, delivered. I said it. God delivered Jesus from death forever, and he has done this for you too, if you are in Jesus. As go the king, so go his people. Delivered from death. So are you in the king's community? If you are, verse 13 can be your song forever. 21:13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing your praise and your power forever. God's power and strength only produce joy in us when we are certain that his strength and power is for us and not against us. Our greatest need in all the world, your greatest need this morning, is for God to be for you. You need God to be for you. You need that more than food. You need that more than water, than air. And in Jesus, it is yours. It is only through Jesus that God will be for you. When Jesus hung on that cross, God rained down his wrath on Jesus so he wouldn't rain it down on you so that all who have faith in Jesus could avoid the wrath. This is how, this is how you get God to be for you. To place your faith in Jesus' perfect life as a substitute for your imperfect life. Jesus lived the perfect life. As go the king, so go his people. This means that by faith in Jesus, you have lived the perfect life. How wild is that? Jesus' lifeless body hung on a tree. As go the king, so go his people. Jesus' lifeless body laid in the tomb. As go the king, so go his people. But... Three days later, Jesus' living body was resurrected in victory over death and victory over sin. As go the king, so go his people. You get victory over death, you get victory over sin. This means that by faith in Jesus, you get it all. Why then should we fear, even in an insane season that we have been through in the last 18 months? We can have just this core certainty about our future that, that differentiates us from the world. We don't have to live by fear because our future is certain. Where are you at with Jesus this morning? By his life, death, and resurrection, is God for you? This morning, I want to encourage you to side with the winning side, to put your hope in the only one who can possibly usher in the permanence of peace and place. God was faithful to deliver David from trouble, and in Jesus, he is faithful to deliver us from the greatest trouble, from God being against us because of our sin. Put your trust in Jesus today or thank God for Jesus today afresh. No matter what, just thank God that as goes King Jesus, so go his people. Will you pray with me? God, what then shall we say to these things? If you are for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against us? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn us? Christ Jesus, the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who then is going to separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or COVID or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, no, for in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, as you go, so we go. Help us follow you. Thank you for the rest of soul we get knowing that you have conquered sin and death on our behalf. Amen.